You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. in New York, in for Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, one week later, Twitter is no longer getting a new board member and Elon Musk. What might have changed the biggest shareholder of the company's mind? Plus, rising inflation with the war in Ukraine still raging on. We'll see how it's felt across the pond and how crypto could potentially help. And we'll go to the floor of the Nasdaq for a conversation with the head of U.S. listings and revenue to get a look at the current IPO market, how all this volatility is affecting filings. Well, amid the war in Ukraine, it rages on. Consumers on both sides of the Atlantic currently tightening their belts due to the rising costs this puts on them, particularly at the gas pump, for example. A key question that many have been talking about is, where is the store of value? Is it gold? Is it digital gold, for example? Let's talk about all of that with our next guest, John Glenn, UK Economic Secretary to the Treasury, of course, MP. And it's wonderful to have you here, Minister. And I'm interested, first and foremost, about what some people have said is the red carpet being rolled out in the United Kingdom at the moment to cryptocurrencies, to innovation of that sort. Mm. Why? Well, I think we've got to accept that this is going to be a great opportunity. Um, we've got to uh, regulate to innovate, though. So we've gripped it in the UK. I made a speech last Monday and I announced a number of interventions. We want to bring industry together with our regulator, with government, so we can work out the best steps to take this uh, interesting phenomena forward because it has many applications, both for financial services and to the wider economy. And uh, so I'm excited about that and I'm pleased that we're able to get that engagement with industry both here and in London yeah. in order to drive it forward. Let's talk about here in New York and mm. the meetings you're having with SEC, Federal Reserve. Uh, this has got to be a cross-Atlantic regulation because this is a global asset class. Well, every jurisdiction will have a slightly different take on it. But I was here in the autumn, and uh, I'm back here now, as you say, in Washington this week as well, talking to regulators, talking to government, but talking to industry as well, to ensure that we meet expectations, that we think creatively about what we need to do to get this into the right place so that consumers have certainty, that any risks are dealt with and faced up to, mm -hmm. and we can actually you know, come to terms with some of the challenges in terms of how do we tax, 
offer? Do we tax? In what way? And how do we create a regulatory framework that is reliable and gives innovators some assurance about the future? What do you make of talent? And in particular, I think of well, the Bank of England have been worrying about the scams that are in and involved within the crypto space. Mm. Andrew Bailey speaking out about that, the head of the Bank of England. Meanwhile, I think it was the Bank of England's fintech hub leaving to a crypto job. Are you seeing more jobs being grown there? Are you see, how do you see the sort of tension between institutional finance moving into the world of that? Well, in the UK, we've been a global hub of fintech, and we've seen that to be very resilient. And I see in cryptocurrency and the exchanges that are developing in the UK a great opportunity. Um, yes, it's right that we've got to get the right regulatory framework in place, and uh, Andrew Bailey's been very clear on that. Uh, we've got to come to terms with a promotions regime that uh, protects consumers, but we've also got to embrace the opportunities of mm. new technologies and new phenomena and how it will apply to markets. Let's talk about the phenomena, the, the, the sensationalism in many ways, some people would say, of non-fungible tokens, NFTs. We've seen, of course, some valuations take a nosedive, but still a lot of interest. And what, I mean, we've got the Royal Mint looking to create an NFT. Mm. Just tell us, our audience, a bit about that. Well, that was part of the announcement last week, that the Chancellor wants us to create an NFT in partnership with the Royal Mint. And it's important that we pick up on the emblems of change that exist here and the opportunities that will exist in the future. So we've asked the Royal Mint to develop that NFT and we look forward to that happening by the summer. I, of course, look at a time in the United Kingdom where my family on the phone talks day in, day out about the inflation, the cost of gas, electricity, what's happening in terms of the ramifications, in many ways, of course, antagonized by the invasion of, of Russia into Ukraine. But talk to us about you know, how the UK feels right now. I'm looking at February, 0.1% growth, the economy being stifled, and that's before you even factor in the implications of the Russia-Ukraine invasion. Well, clearly, these are incredibly challenging times. I think we all hope that we come out of COVID and we get to uh, brighter times, but that hasn't happened. What's happened in the Ukraine has had a uh, you know, very difficult, uh, has a very difficult impact on, on the economy. And uh, we, are, we are seeing that. We also had global pressures in terms of uh, inflationary pressures, and that's playing out. It's playing out here in the US, it's playing out in the UK, and uh, across the globe. And uh, these are challenging times for, for British consumers. Challenging times for British consumers where they're being asked to burden heavier taxes. I mean, in particular, perhaps the, the largest overall tax burden in the UK since the 1950s. Mm. And a time where they look to their own Chancellor of the Exchequer and feel he, Rishi Sunak, is perhaps out of touch with some of the burdens they're having to share. Mm. You are, of course, within the team of Rishi Sunak's, and mm. I'm wondering how, how he is dealing with the pressure that is currently upon him, upon his family, when, of course, many are worrying that his own family members haven't been paying their own tax that they should have been doing. And, and, and we look in particular at his wife, who, of course, has, is a billionaire, super rich in her own right, but many feel didn't pay UK taxes on her overseas earnings. How is that being digested? Well, I think the Chancellor is an absolute professional in the way he's worked over these last two years. He was parachuted into this role at the start of a global pandemic, and he's uh, worked tirelessly to provide interventions to support the British economy. 
Uh, I recognise these are challenging times for him uh, and his family, but he will come through them. But his focus is on doing what it takes to get the British economy into the right place through these very, very difficult times. And he's made a number of interventions dealing with the thresholds of when you start to pay national insurance and tax, support for the least well-off in society. Of course, there will be many who will say there's more to be done, and he will look to, to the future uh, fiscal events to address some of those concerns. How do you feel when, as a member of, you know, Conservative Party, looking at really what ethically it's being judged at mm. by at the moment, when we think of the, the, the party gate, the, the leader of your mm. party went, underwent, when we look at the Chancellor of Exchequer, who seemingly just doesn't seem to be in touch with reality, many people feel that, mm. and his holding a green card at the same time as being Chancellor of the Exchequer, what sort of really tethering he has in the longer term to the country. And then you, of course, I mean, nothing to do with you, I realise, but certain, you know, today, just the unseating of, of an MP and, and a crisis election because of you know, previous misdemeanors when it comes to sexual abuse. I mean, how does it make you feel when you're trying to stand up here in the US and defend your Conservative Party? Well, I've been in this post for nearly four and a half years. I'm the longest serving economic secretary we've had in the UK. It's a great privilege to do this job. And I, like the Chancellor, focus on the task in hand. I've done that through three chancellors. And uh, I've always been impressed by the professionalism of the people I've worked under. And there's no difference with Rishi Sunak, who's a first-rate boss, a first-rate chancellor. And I have absolute confidence in that he will come through these difficult moments. And we will uh, see what can be done in terms of future fiscal events of the budget. Well, come back, tell us the story unfolding in the UK and indeed how you continue to embrace some change and certainly in the world of technology, the UK Economic Secretary to the Treasury, that is, John Glenn. Well, a week feels like a month, doesn't it, with Elon Musk and Twitter. Just take a quick look at where things stood just one week ago, because last Monday it was, of course, revealed that Musk held 9.2% stake in Twitter, making him the company's biggest shareholder. Well, the next day, Musk was invited to join Twitter's board of directors, which he accepted. We then learned Musk was delayed in reporting his new stake in Twitter and concerns that the SEC might start looking around. Twitter employees also started voicing concerns about well, having Musk's involvement and the influence he might have on the company. And then over the weekend, we've been tweeting about Twitter, quote, dying, then tweeted that Jeff Bezos about turning Twitter's headquarters into a homeless shelter. And on Sunday night, we learned that by Twitter, the CEO, Parag Agrawal, that Musk won't be joining the board after all, after some pretty bad jokes on Twitter as well by Elon Musk. So we're going to dive into all of this. And the first angle we're going to look at is why Musk might have rejected the offer in particular to be on the board. Joining me now, John C. Coffey Jr., Professor of Law at Columbia University Law School. And what an extraordinary story to be unfolding. And I'm interested at the moment, Professor, about first and foremost what you think is behind all of this. What is initially perhaps the rejection about? Well, on one level, this looks like... Uh deja vu all over again, or Elon being Elon. He did this at Tesla when he didn't disclose or he falsely disclosed that he had an offer to take the company private that Saudi Arabia was standing behind. He didn't have it, and when the SEC sued, he agreed that he'd put in the general counsel of the company as an intermediary between him and any public statement about the company. Now, he's never been happy with that. He's never really obeyed that. But now we're over at Twitter, and he's doing the same thing. He's under a legal duty to disclose when he crosses 5%. 
we eventually got up to near 10%. Think about all the people who sold in that interval between 5% and 10%, which could be 100 million or more in terms of shares. Now, those people would have sold at a much higher price if he had disclosed that he was buying and that he was going on the board or that he was just becoming the largest shareholder of the company because he is basically the world's richest man and can buy what he wants. When he didn't disclose, they sold at a lower price than they would have gotten with fair disclosure. And some of those people may sue in a class action claiming that they were cheated by effectively insider trading when he bought the stock hmm. with disclosing uh, information that he was required by law to disclose. Now, you can debate both sides of that, but it is likely to get either a private lawsuit or the SEC suing on behalf of those shareholders. Um. Yes, has been concerned. They were concerned about some trading activities at Tesla when he yes. was traded heavily, when he was, uh, in effect, paging the shareholders, polling them to see if they wanted him to change his ownership levels. There could be, the SEC, in the SEC's mind, a recurring pattern of close to the line or over the line insider trading violations, and that could bring a very serious lawsuit. Professor, talk to us about fiduciary duty here, because many felt perhaps it was in any way, many ways defensive of Twitter to have brought him onto the board. At least it stops him perhaps building up the stake further than, than any further than 14%, for example. However, what limitations would have it put on Elon Musk to his own communications, his own tweeting, well, if he indeed had joined the board? Of course, I think the reason he did not go on the board was partly that uh, the CEO really couldn't tolerate some of the statements he was making. He, for example, tweeted the world that he would like to have Twitter stop selling advertising. Now, that must have stunned the CEO because Twitter makes about 90% of its revenues from advertising. If you're the CEO, you just can't have anyone, including this richer man as a director, making statements without having them cleared by management, council, or anyone. Uh, so that was one of about a half dozen mm. And I don't think the CEO can focus on long-term planning where he's going to get a daily barrage of comments in all directions from Elon Musk. So just to walk us through again the legal ramifications here, you're expecting SEC and indeed perhaps first, private first lawsuits all, currently. I mean, it's something that action. Elon Musk has dealt be, with before, different right? Things could happen. Different things could happen. There could be a class action by investors who sold during the period when he had not disclosed what he was supposed to disclose is greater than 5% ownership, which went up to 10%. The SEC could say also, uh, these statements really uh, do amount to a material omission. You didn't disclose that you owned over 5%. You breached your legal duty. And we say that also could amount to insider trading. Or they could just say you made false and reckless statements. I think and fines, Professor? Would that be what comes attention. of it? I'm sorry. What? And would the ramifications be fines or something worse? Oh, if you are, uh, well, first of all, insider trading can be a criminal offense. The SEC can't charge a crime, but the Department of Justice conceivably could. Beyond that, the SEC can sue for damages equal to as much as three times the gain made or the loss averted. Here it would be a gain when he bought this stock. Mm. So, he didn't disclose at the outset when he crossed 5% what he was doing, and the SEC could seek three times the gain on the stock between the 5% level and the 10% level. Now, he's the richest man in the world. That won't bankrupt him, but it's a painful amount to pay. John Coffey, Jr.
Columbia Law School professor. Fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. I want to stick with Musk and with the internal issues he was, of course, facing from Twitter and welcome in Wedbush Securities Managing Director Dan Ives for what is another extraordinary story involving Elon Musk. And from your perspective, what happens now if he's not on the board? Look, I think, you know, him being on the board, that was almost a Cinderella story to the point that he'd be on the board, they'd limit his ownership to 15%, and you know, strategically could help the company. Now, it's a total different situation. I view it as more hostile. I think he ups his stake going forward. And now the question is, does he team up with private equity, and how active does he get? I mean, for Twitter, I think this goes from a Cinderella story to, to potentially Game of Thrones with uh, you know, Musk and Twitter and the board mm. you know, clearly going to lock heads. Great analogies there. What if they're going to lock heads? Do you anticipate? Well, first and foremost, is your number one perspective that we do see some sort of buyout? Does Twitter eventually get bored or go private? What do you expect? Look, I mean, before Musk is involved, I mean, Twitter, you know, as a stock, has been a significant underperformer. Advertising has been extremely disappointing, which is why he's sort of the knight in shining armor, at least for investors in Twitter. You know, I think now the next step is going to be he's going to be a loud force. I do not expect that he's going to go home, reduce his stake. And now there's going to be a bright spot on Twitter in terms of the strategy, the advertising. They obviously have a, a key quarter coming up. And for Twitter, for, you know, for the board, it's their worst nightmare mm. because Musk in the boardroom is contained. Musk outside the boardroom, now this becomes a soap opera, get out the popcorn yeah. time. I mean, he's an activist investor with 8 million who follow him on Twitter, and I'm interested as to what, therefore, you think can be damage limitations here. What, what will be the product innovations that potentially start happening? Look, I think eventually this is going to sort of end with some sort of strategic initiatives. And now whether that ends with an ultimate sale, if that ends with maybe sunsetting some products, focus on some of the subscriber and advertising side, because that's that's the issue right now. I mean, they're losing Instagram, TikTok, and others in social media. Musk, that's not necessarily his expertise. But, I mean, this is really going to, over the coming months mm. and, you know, I think, year, you're really going to be, you know, I think, a very tough situation for Twitter and its board if they somehow you know, mis-execute again over the coming quarters. Before you go, we've got time to just also think about the world of cybersecurity for a moment, because I caught my attention was your note that you put out about SailPoint, of course, the, the, the deal being done there and the purchase. What do you make of the focus and, and where to be putting your money at the moment in terms of cybersecurity? I think it's a golden age for cybersecurity. It's a defensive area of tech. Look at SailPoint getting bought, and you know, Mandian got bought by Google. You know, I look at names like Tenable, Palo Alto, CyberArk, uh, Checkpoint, among others, and I think in, it really just shows the value of cybersecurity. Public investors will sell the stocks, the strategic and financials will buy them. Dan Ives, it's always so great to catch up with you with all the mm -hmm. analogies of Webbush. We thank you so much. We'll have more next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. 
Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. This is Bloomberg Technology. Here are a few of the other stories that we've been following in Canadian e-commerce software firm. That's Shopify. Plans a 10-for-1 stock split. Now, we'll be giving CEO Toby Lutka a special founder share that will preserve his voting power as long as he's at the company. Now, shares of Shopify, and they've been under pressure, down, what, by half this year. But ending the day, as you can see, a little bit higher. Sony and the owner of Lego Group. Now, those two companies have invested $2 billion in Epic Games, the maker of Fortnite. The investment value values Epic at $31.5 billion. The video game maker is one of the five most valuable startups in the U.S. It's currently waging, of course, though, a costly legal battle with Apple and Alphabet over fees charged by app stores. China, meanwhile, has approved the first batch of new video game licenses since July. Bloomberg's learned that regulators have distributed a list of approved titles to developers. Last August, China's far-reaching tech crackdown spread to online gaming. The government introduced measures capping playtime for minors and new requirements aimed at curbing addiction. This is Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in for Emily Chang with several big names, of course, expected to go public this year. Some are kind of decelerating their efforts with a volatile market upon our hands. Joining us now to discuss all of this in the pipeline, how solid it is, Karen Snow, Senior Vice President and Head of U.S. Listings and Revenue for the NASDAQ. Some fantastic to have some time with you, Karen. And talk to us about the solidity of the pipeline. How are we seeing companies? Are they just hunkering down, weathering until we do see an ease up in volatility or is it something different? Yeah, I think uh, companies are really uh, preparing uh, to go public. Uh, I think this year is going to be a situation where you see windows of opportunity, uh, and they want to be able to hit the market uh, when that window opens. Uh, we are starting to see signs of life. What I would say is that um, we're very focused on the VIX, which is the volatility index. Yeah. Uh, and when that um, is between or really below 25, uh, which is really 
really where we like to see it. 95% uh, of companies go public uh, when it's below that level. So uh, we're very focused on that as a lead indicator as well as the convertible market, which has started to open up. Uh, the VIX has stayed below 25 for the past uh, 18 sessions, which mm. I think is a good sign. Uh, and we're starting to get inbound calls from companies that are looking to go public at the end of April, uh, early May. What kind of companies, Karen? Uh, well, there are uh, a lot of interest from consumer companies. That's about 37% of the pipeline. 22% uh, are tech companies. 19% are healthcare companies. About 10% are financial companies. And the remainder are industrial and energy companies. So really good breadth and depth from and representation from the entire economy. And when you're thinking about how it would be taken down by the market, it feels as though everyone's off for an inflation hedge at the moment. Are these companies sort of an analyzing how they can tell that story in some way? Yeah, I think it's important. Um, you know, valuations have adjusted for that inflation. Um, you know, companies uh, have to address the current pipeline situation um, with, you know, all the disruption. Um, so they, they definitely have to have their ducks in a row. Uh, and I think there's no rush to go to the, the public markets at the moment. There's plenty of ways to raise capital. Mm. Um, so people really want to make sure that they're ready. Uh, what I would say is that we see a very healthy pipeline. The pipeline for companies is greater than it was this time uh, last year. Mm. Uh, so we're very optimistic uh, about that. Talk to us about whether or not there is a disconnect between the public markets and the private markets at the moment. Uh, I think we're starting to see that close. Uh, you know, what I would say is that, uh, you know, public markets tell you exactly where they think things belong, um, and private markets respond a little bit uh, more slowly to that. Uh, I don't think that's a bad thing, but that is, you know, one of the key differences between the public and, and the private markets. I think companies that are looking to go public understand that, um, and they've gotten their heads around their current valuations and, and what the market expectations might be. We've had, of course, a fascinating story in whichever way you want to slice it with what's happening between Elon Musk and indeed Twitter. And what many have looked at is perhaps a lack of a controlling stake by a founder, whereas we look at a Shopify, for example, today that's doing a stock split and, and making sure that the founder continues to maintain some sort of level of control. When companies are coming to the market at the moment, how are they looking at those sorts of narratives and the way in which companies are structured? Yeah, well, what I would say is that ESG has become much more topical uh, for private companies coming to the market. We're spending a lot more time uh, with companies on the private side as they're preparing. Governance has always been um, very topical. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, it's really up to the company how they want to structure their business. Um, you know, investors, I think, uh, will assign a discount or a premium based on uh, what they feel is the right structure. You, of course, are an expert on the E and the S as well as the G. And I'm interested in the social path at the moment. That Now is a time more than any that we're thinking about humanity, really, when we're looking at Russia, Ukraine, when we're thinking about all the stakeholders and the way in which employees want to see their companies stand for something, when they see the, the customers want to see their companies stand for things. How are you seeing that being sort of exercised by businesses that are looking to list as well? 
Yeah, well, there's a lot more conversation around um, stakeholder capitalism because of that. It's the entire ecosystem um, that is focused on it. And I think companies are recognizing that their customers, that their employees, uh, that their investors uh, are all focused on these issues and want to make sure that um, wherever they work, wherever they shop, um, that those brands uh, and companies are doing uh, the right thing, whatever that may be. And how about the E, the environmental? Because suddenly it feels as though a country with an administration that was so focused on energy transition is suddenly having to think about, well, digging, oil, gas, what we're usually dependent on for our energy. And I'm interested as to what companies you're coming through. You said about, what, 10% or of thereabouts were, were energy businesses. What kinds of energy businesses? Yeah, well, we're seeing a lot of new energy. We're actually, um, you know, experiencing a lot of uh, transfers to NASDAQ and the utility sector as that um, whole sector transitions to new energy. Um, so we've been seeing this for quite some time. Um, I think the, the current climate um, has really uh, raised people's awareness um, as it relates to our dependency uh, on carbon. Uh, and then, of course, you have the SE. SEC out with their um, climate change proposal. So there's a lot going on in the space. Um, this is a lot of bobbing and weaving and threading needles, but I don't think there's any doubt that our economy is transitioning uh, to new energy. Well, Karen Snow, it's been great to have some time with you. I'll let you get back to the healthy pipeline and see as and when the companies come back. And I, that VIX level, currently sub 25. We thank you so much, Karen Snow of NASDAQ. Meanwhile, well, it's been a while since Jeff Bezos pledged to fill the skies with like a fleet of delivery drones zipping parcels to customers' homes in 30 minutes. Now, almost actually a decade after that promise, Amazon's drones have mostly technical challenges to show for themselves. Amazon Prime Air co-founder Go Kimchi giving even a video, posting it on LinkedIn, showing a package being delivered in the middle of, well, nowhere. Let's talk about all of this and more with Bloomberg Spencer Soper with his big take, of course, a key story that dropped on the Bloomberg for our terminal users today. And Spencer, what's been the main issue? Well, the main issue is this design where Amazon wanted to uh, combine the maneuverability of a helicopter that could go up and down with a plane that could fly forward. And that's a really difficult design to pull off. They wanted it for the payload that it could carry up to five pounds, which represents about 85% of Amazon's deliveries, as well as the range. They wanted to be a, the drone to be able to do a 15-mile round trip, which they see as being critical to serve a big enough population. Um, and so that design has been tricky. And, you know, last summer they had a really bad incident when the drone was um, transitioning from that up and down uh, flight pattern to the forward pattern where one of the motors failed there's, there's six propellers on the drone. One of the motors failed, and it completely disabled the thing. All of these safety mechanisms that were supposed to kick in failed as well, and you ended up with a, an 85-pound drone dropping from 160 feet in the sky to the ground, and it's this hot lithium battery on board that powers it, creating a brush fire that spread 25 acres. And so that was alarming to federal aviation officials mm -hmm. who are worried about the airworthiness of this thing. You know, if we're going to have this flying over roads and people and, and schools, yeah. you know, how safe is it? And yet, despite all those headwinds, despite the issues, the, the, the engineering issues, the safety issues, this seems to be an area they're still committed to. Is, is it because of the supply chain headaches, the costs? What is it that makes it still so attractive? Yeah, well, you figure uh, 30 minutes 
that's really a critical window where you think, you know what, that's faster probably than me leaving my house and going to the store and coming back. Whereas a lot of their other options, like two-hour delivery or same-day delivery, a lot of times you're still just quick to run out to the store and back. So that's really that trying to match that instant gratification um, is where drones fit in, as well as some of the things you talk about, like cost and you know dispatching drivers. Is that uh, you know robotic drones are the ultimate solution to that to that quick delivery challenge? So they continue to deploy capital there, invest. It's all about R&D. We know that with Amazon. They've also, of course, just been raising some extra debt to be able to finance general corporate purposes, but a massive bond sale coming from Amazon. Talk to us about what we think it will be used for. Yeah, they haven't given a whole lot of clarity on it um, other than like you know, these general corporate expenses. And so with Amazon, they, they keep expanding capacity. They keep expanding um uh, you know, trying to get closer to customers. Mm. Uh, and so we're going to see see more of that. You know, the, the, the creep of the Amazon warehouse is going to get closer and closer to you, and the facilities get more and more specialized to, uh, to be more efficient. And, and really, from your perspective, the safety concerns that workers have been telling you their inside stories, you think they're surmountable? Potentially. I mean, a lot of the workers believe in the technology, just think that there's a little bit of too much haste to bring this to... Uh, uh, you know, to people's homes to actually try to deploy it where they feel like maybe this needs to come back to the R&D cycle and, and more tinkering and more um, learning before before they're trying to prove the airworthiness of, of these machines. Spencer Soper, great reporting and it's amazing big take. I urge everyone to go and see it online and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thank you so much. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Time now for our crypto report with our crypto contributor. That is, of course, Shanali Basak. And Bitcoin, what, declining again in the last 24 hours under pressure. But it's not actually the underperformer, right? Yeah, very interesting here. We have altcoins that have really dropped a lot more, now looking at a seven-day decline of more than 20% for, for, uh, for uh, first 
stable coins and altcoins such as Cardano, Terra Luna, as we know that these companies are already kind of buying each other's reserves. When you look at Terra Luna, for example, buying not just Bitcoin, but also Avalanche, which is down more than 20% on the seven-day period here, Caroline. So you're looking at correlations. While some are dropping more than others, it's important to recognize now how much this entire community is related to each other. So if you're buying Bitcoin, what happens to the Terra price? If you're buying Avalanche, what happens to the Terra price? Um, what else is Bitcoin related to? I think it's very interesting. You're seeing this intensifying correlation with the NASDAQ 100. If you take a look at this chart, it's greater than really it's ever been. So NASDAQ sells off, so does Bitcoin. How important is that to market participants? Because many every now and then sort of send out hopeful tweets saying, look, the correlation is pulling back a little bit. But do they want to see it dislocate somewhat from the NASDAQ? I guess it means that it's deemed a risk asset. Yeah, I had a conversation with a hedge fund manager who is typically invested in a lot of other hedge funds and asked if this is now a diversifier. And he said he was able to hold stable because, or generally stable, because he had Bitcoin rather than a lot of other risk assets. So to your point, there are some traditional money managers that do take a look at this and say, okay, we still want a diversifying asset here. But most people who are still Bitcoin believers and buying Bitcoin don't look at the volatility here. And again, we are down below $40,000 again on Bitcoin, right? So what is, we're back to asking, what is that floor? They're still looking to what that 300000 or 500000 per Bitcoin price target looks like over the next five years. The question is, if this year is a dud, then how quickly do we get to 500000 And indeed, what it means for the nascent interest coming from institutional clients, right? Yeah, exactly. Because it, what is it correlated to? They are still going to have that question. We are getting more answers, and there are definitely quants out there that are doing the math on this. Because even beyond NASDAQ, the, you and I had spoken to somebody a little earlier, making that correlation with the dollar. If the dollar weakens, that gives you a case for Bitcoin as an alternative currency, doesn't it? Or, or if inflation rises, that's another correlation that used to be there now that is breaking down more dramatically. So again, early days of an asset class, a fun Wall Street strategist thing to do to figure out what it is really related to. And geographical demand? Do we have any breakdown on that of late? Uh, that's an interesting question, especially because Terra has been such a big buyer. There's a lot of questions about what it means to have one buyer being such a big base here to the asset. But yeah, beyond that, unclear as to how much more after Bitcoin 2022 and uh, Salt Bahamas coming up around the corner, how much interest is being drummed up among new investors around the world. We brace ourselves for a whole load of headlines coming out of Salt as we just digest what was, well, a whole load of aspersions being cast towards some older participants in Wall Street coming from one Peter Thiel at the blue, uh, of course, the overall Bitcoin 2022 over in Miami. Bloomberg's Shanali Brasak with your breakdown in correlations. We thank her. Meanwhile, coming up, using wigs to help solve the problem of bias in AI. This is going to be a fascinating conversation with the co-founders of Parfait about how they're really looking at data sets, open source data sets that they're helping to improve for people of color. This is Bloomberg.
Disrupting AI, or indeed its data sets, is the ultimate goal of Parfait. It's a company founded by two sisters and some other co-founders, and they're doing it by getting into the rapidly growing wig market. Now they have the backing of some of the pretty big names already, including Serena Ventures, backed by, of course, Serena Williams. Joining me now are two women behind this. They happen to be sisters, as we just mentioned. Iso and Ifueko Igbenadian, and it's great to have some time with both of you. And Iso, first and foremost, talk to us about what inspired you to want to take in what is a rapidly growing market and a large one in terms of total addressable market. Yeah, so the origins of Parfait really started with an experience, um, a problem experienced by many women, which is managing and caring for our textured hair. The journey for me started at 10 years old when I had a very terrible experience with a chemical relaxer that made all of my natural hair fall out. And so I really started using hair wigs and extensions to give my hair a break and then a chance to regrow and have essentially spent the last 20 years navigating the friction field market of hair wigs and extensions. So really from our collective experience solving technical challenges during our times in some of the largest tech companies in the world, we were really inspired to leverage AI and computer vision to improve the lives of people in our communities and mm. with black hair at the top of our list of problems that needed real investment for a better solution. Parfait was really born with a mission to develop products and services with technology that recognize and prioritize all people, starting with people of color. And Fuego, talk to us about how you're going to be using facial recognition, skin coloring, to be able to match people to the correct wig, for example. And when you're looking at servicing your direct-to-consumer, what what was missing in the data, in the open source data already? Yeah, you know, our world continues to be more informed and shaped by artificial intelligence. And as we think about the future, we really have to start prioritizing and finding solutions to make it much more equitable. And so the training data used in facial recognition technology currently are largely imbalanced, and it often relies on data that is very similar in makeup. And thus, the visual makeup of those faces do not represent the composition of faces worldwide. And so this often results in very poor performance for people of color who don't fit into that data set. And so the impact of this can be seen in the innovations of computer-facing AI that cause negative external experiences for people of color. You know, one study by the Georgia Institute Technology saw findings in autonomous driving systems that have more difficulty in detecting pedestrians with darker skin. Um, you know, another study showed that you know non-white test takers taking exam proctoring software reported issues when attempting to verify their identity. And so, at Parfait, we're really trying to tackle this problem to make major progress in improving the product and service outcomes for marginalized communities, starting by building facial recognition tech technology for women and people of color. So, so 5 million already raised. I mean, of course, you've got a product that you want to unfold. You've got a list of, what, 10,000 at least people that signed up to be starting to buy their wigs via you. And, but you're looking at, of course, improving manufacturing when it comes to wigs, but also, as you say, building up the data set, making AI more fit for purpose, less bias. Start to tell us how you go about doing that from the ground up. Yeah, you know, yeah so from the manufacturing. Apologies, I, I said ESO too early. ESO, this one was aimed at you. Yeah, so um, right now manufacturing this industry hasn't seen innovation in quite some time. You're, the raw hair and lace products that are used to construct these wigs really require significant time and manual intervention, which is a large reason for the exorbitant price tag. Mm -hmm. And so really our goal is to fundamentally change the way that these products are produced from the source, making it faster and cheaper to produce customized wigs at scale.
Okay, and I'm interested in, therefore, also, if Fueco, when you're looking at the manufacturing revolutionizing that, getting people a more valuable product, but a more uh, consumer-sensitive price point, in particular on perhaps something that usually would cost thousands, coming down to the hundreds. If Fueco, I'm interested in what also you need to do in terms of bringing le less bias within the data that you're using. How are you going out and ensuring that you're making it better and a more efficient AI? Yeah, you know, we can't ever say that artificial intelligence is going to be perfect. And while we take those precautions, you know, going out and collecting raw data ourselves, making sure that our data sets are balanced when it comes to annotations and gender and all those types of things, we also have a very human-focused pipeline in which our stylists and our, you know, live team members are going in and correcting and annotating any data that doesn't fit the customer's needs. And Iso, briefly, I mean, of course, your product is for people of all colors and therefore in very much you can see that from your marketing and the way in which you're focused. But talk to us about just how big a market this is. Remind the people who have been putting money in there that this is sizable, this is scaling. Yeah, this is a $13 billion market. It's expected to grow by 13% to $13.2 billion by 2026. And so women have been largely underserved mm -hmm. in the core pieces of wig wearing that require you to be able to wear these products to look natural and confident. And that's true customization. And so what we're really doing is creating a way for these women to be able to customize their wigs and extensions without all of that manual friction. And quite frankly, what we have found is because of the way the manufacturing process is today, it's going to be required for us to be able to scale this to mm. the $13 billion market that needs it. Um, we would require AI and technical intervention. And that's what we're working on today with this round of funding. Well, you went live today. We thank you so much for coming out of beta and coming on this program. Iso Ifueko, Igbenadian, we thank you so much. Co-founders of Parfait, a fascinating story. Go check it out and all their marketing. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We'll be joined tomorrow by the likes of Matthew Ball from Hillian Co. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.